0: Father, that is our confession this morning. We come before you as those who have no righteousness of our own to in any way commend ourselves to you. We come as those who are condemned by the law. Our sin is exposed before your holiness and your purity, your perfect righteousness. We confess that this week, throughout our lives, we have not loved you as we ought, we have not obeyed you, we have violated your law. And we have fallen short of your glory. And yet in your goodness and in your grace and for the sake of your glory, you have provided for us righteousness and life and cleansing through your son. We thank you today for the promise of the gospel that as we confess our sins, we can come to gladly receive your forgiveness and your cleansing. And our standing before you today is not because of our merits, not because of what we do, but because of Christ. I pray that as we have rehearsed these gospel truths this morning, that it would prepare us now to receive your word, that we would receive what it is that you want to reveal to us today. Speak to us, Lord, and open our hearts to experience your grace and the working of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Carrie, for teaching us that new song. I'm looking forward to singing that with you all over the next number of weeks. Carrie said, I'd love to learn this song before Easter. So learn it, practice it, so that we can sing that one extra loud on Resurrection Sunday. Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 6. As we make our way, we're nearing the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's a, a parallel to what many of us are familiar with in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a number of famous statements, familiar statements in this sermon illustrations that Jesus uses that have passed on into common language. We probably use them and quote them without even knowing where they always come from. We've gone through a number of those in this sermon. Jesus taught us, we saw this previously, that there is a kind of sinful judgment that we are to avoid. Judge not that you be not judged, right? That's the world's favorite Bible verse. We're very familiar with it as well. It's The sinful kind of judgment that Christians must reject. And it's judgmentalism, you could call it that. It's a proud, it's a merciless, self-righteous kind of judgment of others that is hypocritical in its nature. But as we talked about last week, there is also a necessary and right kind of judgment. A kind of judgment that we as Christians must exercise. We have to make, on the one hand, we have to make doctrinal judgments. False teaching has to be identified so that it can then be rejected. Truth is precious. And as we saw last week, following blind guides can only lead to disaster. So we have to make doctrinal judgments, but we also have to make moral judgments. True citizens of the kingdom, genuine followers of Jesus, will be sensitive to the moral will of our Master. What is it that pleases our Savior? What is it that he commands? We have to recognize what is right and what is wrong, not according to the world's standard, not even according to our own intuitions, but according to the standard of our king. We are not moral relativists. So we have to make not only doctrinal judgments, but moral judgments. But here's the the tricky part. Making moral judgments inevitably means that we do more than just judging certain actions. It also means that we end up evaluating the people who are doing those actions, and this is necessary. If we're going to avoid the blind guides that Jesus warns us about in verse 39, then we have to be able to assess the true character of people around us. That's a character judgment. And on the flip side, if we're going to avoid the personal hypocrisy that Jesus warns us against in verses 41 and 42, the kind of hypocrisy that sees the speck in someone else's eye, but conveniently ignores the log that's in my eye, if we're going to do that, we have to be able to honestly assess the condition of our own heart. So it requires that we make a right and necessary kind of judgment. And Jesus uses a famous illustration of a tree and a fruit. To show us what kind of judgments we should make. Our text this morning is verses 43 through 45 in Luke chapter 6. This is God's word to us today. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The point is simply this. What we do reveals what we are. What we do reveals what we are. And right judgment, the kind of judgment we're called to, perceives the condition of the heart. So what we do reveals what we are, and right judgment perceives that. Right judgment is able to assess the condition of the heart. That's what Jesus is teaching. I'd like to look at how Jesus illustrates this principle, and then how he presses the spiritual truth home so that we can consider together some of those implications. It's a very simple outline this morning. Jesus begins, number one, with a simple illustration. Fruit reveals the kind of tree. That's the illustration in verses 43 and 44, that the kind of fruit reveals the kind of tree. Fruit is always consistent with the species or the type of the tree that that tree is. It would be absurd for us to expect anything different. Again, this is common sense. If you look at the little phrase Jesus uses in verse 44, he says, each tree is known by its own fruit. In the Greek language, this is, emphasizing something, when he says its own, he's kind of doubling down to show us this is something that's intrinsically connected to the nature of the tree. It's a result of what the tree is. The tree is known, it is judged, it is sized up, it is identified by its fruit. So that's why we name trees. We name different kinds of plants in light of what they are, a bramble bush or a fig tree as Jesus uses here, whatever the case may be. And the point is, there's nothing presumptuous, there's nothing unfair about doing that. Calling an apple tree an apple tree is no judgment. As a kid, we had an apple tree in our backyard, and it produced these small but but really tasty apples. And we would climb this tree, we would eat in the backyard off this tree whenever we wanted. We even made some pies out of apples that came from this tree. When you would mow, there would inevitably be, you know, some of those brown apples that fell off, and you'd step on them or roll over them. It always smelled a little fermented underneath this tree. And you know what me and my family, my brothers, we, what we called this tree? We called it the apple tree. <laughs> what else would we call it, right? I mean, that's common sense, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. Now, as hearers, imagine yourself listening to this sermon of Jesus, and he's saying, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes. You don't find grapes on a bramble bush. You can imagine people nodding along. Of course. One commentator describes this as Jesus baiting the trap. If you agree with him to this point, he's got you right where he wants you. As we nod our heads in agreement, Jesus now begins to present the spiritual principle that he is teaching. He's not just wanting to teach us something about the nature of trees, the nature of fruit. He wants to teach us something about human nature, something about our own hearts. The second piece of this passage, number 2, is the spiritual principle that follows on the heels of the illustration. And the spiritual principle is that behavior reveals the condition of the heart. Behavior reveals the condition of what's actually in our hearts. Just like the kind of fruit shows what kind of tree it is, our behavior reveals the condition of the heart. Jesus says people are like trees. We're just like trees. And just like there's good trees and bad trees, there are good people and bad people. And while good and bad refers to the usefulness of a tree, it's not like a tree can do anything wrong. If it bears thorns or figs or apples or grapes, that's just simply what it is. We find them good or bad because of how useful they are. Are those apples ripe? Or is this producing some sort of poisonous fruit? That's how we evaluate a tree. But when Jesus says good and bad people, we're talking about a moral judgment. Jesus is saying something about the character of a man. The fruit we produce, the way we live, our actions and our words show what we are. Our behavior reveals the condition of the heart. But we have to make clear what Jesus is not saying. Because a lot of times people understand this illustration, but they read it backwards. We instinctively understand this in kind of a a reverse way that's not true. This illustration only works one direction. This is is a one-way street. Jesus is not saying that the things we do determine the kind of people that we are. Do you understand that? What we do does not determine what kind of person we are. Flip it around the other way. What we do reveals what we are, or what we are determines what we do. For instance, if you're a dog, you're going to bark, but barking does not make you a dog, despite what the modern mental health professionals may say okay? It's the same thing with this. People don't, it's not the things you do that make you what you are. It's the other direction. What you are determines the things that you do. We act according to our nature, whether good or bad. And so Jesus says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now at this point, there's a couple of you that may be asking a question. Wait a second. Can a man, can a woman, can anyone really be good? Is anyone good? Let's zoom out and see what Scripture says. To fast forward a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 18, someone comes to Jesus, this wealthy young ruler And he asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, and I think with a twinkle in his eye, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20 asserts, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 53, verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul will quote this scripture in Romans and say, There are none righteous, no, not one. The psalmist laments in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 143, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, the psalmist pleads, for no one living is righteous before you. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. And that doctrine is not just something that theologians came up with because it fit nicely in their systematic theology. This is simply what Scripture says over and over and over again, that we are all sinners and that none of us are really good in and of ourselves. No one stands guiltless before God. No one measures up to his righteous standard. We do sinful things because we are sinful by nature. This is part of what we are. We often think of sin as, well, that's things that I do. But Jesus is saying, no, we do sins because of what we are. We are sinful by nature, having descended from Adam. So no one is good in that sense. Apart from God, apart from his grace, apart from the gospel, by nature, by birth, we are not good. And the reason for this, and this is important, this is what Jesus is driving at. The reason for this is because we have a heart problem. You and I have a heart problem, and it's been this way from the beginning, All the way back in Genesis chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What was the problem in Noah's day? Why did the flood come? Because man had a heart problem. This problem didn't go away after the flood. Noah carried the disease with him. He and his family spread it. And as the earth was repopulated, even God's people, Israel, were afflicted with this disease of the heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Some translations have it. Who can understand it? We have a heart problem. Jesus taught in Mark 7, 21, that from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, the church age. The problem is that man has a sinful heart. Friends, this is what's wrong with the world. This is what's wrong with the United States. This is what's wrong with the school system. This is what's wrong with your marriage. This is what's wrong with your prodigal child. This is what's wrong with you. And this is what's wrong with me. We have a heart problem. The problem is we love ourselves. The problem is that we reject God. The problem is that in our hearts we crave the things of the world. The problem is that we fear man instead of God. The problem is that we believe lies instead of the truth. The problem is that we harbor sinful desires and we foolishly think that we are wise. And these problems in the heart, this bad treasure, as Jesus calls it, that treasure meaning this is what's been stored up in the heart, Jesus said it produces no shortage of bad fruit. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has not left us to sit with our problem, with no recourse, with no help. In his great mercy, he has provided a way for the human heart to be changed. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. There it is. There is good news. There's gospel, even in the Old Testament, that God is in the business of doing heart surgery. God will circumcise your heart. God is going to do this procedure to deal with the problem that all of us are born with. In Ezekiel chapter 11, he unpacks this promise. He says, In Ezekiel 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that this spiritual surgery, this heart surgery that God does, this is not just a little tune-up. This is not cleaning up that cartilage from high school football, okay? This is not just like getting LASIK surgery to slightly improve your vision. This is a full-blown transplant. It is a new heart in place of the old heart. By God's grace, an unbelieving evil heart can be transformed into a good heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that loves his word, a heart that delights and desires to submit to his will. 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes this transformation. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And when this happens, to go back to our question, can a man actually be good? Well, when this happens, when God steps in and does heart surgery, a spiritual transplant kind of surgery, When this happens, we are enabled and empowered to actually do works to produce fruit that is qualitatively good. Although no one's naturally good, God is able to make us good. In Acts chapter 11.24, it speaks of Barnabas, and it says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. By God's grace, it is possible to be good. Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, goodness. God is able to produce goodness in you and in me through the power of the Spirit. Paul would commend the Roman believers in Romans 15.14, saying, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. What becomes clear in Scripture is that the good person that Jesus is talking about, who is able to bring out good treasure out of his heart, The good person is the one who knows God. The good person is the one who has experienced God's grace. The good person is the one who has been filled with God's spirit. The good person is the one who acts in accordance with God's will. On the flip side, there are some, Jesus says, who are not good. Verse 45 says, The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. There are some who do not know God. There are some who do not love God. There are some who have not received and experienced the the heart-changing grace of God. There are some who do not act in accordance with God's moral will. They have a heart problem. The Apostle John in 3 John verse 11 says, whoever does good is from God. Whoever who does evil has not seen God. When he says he has not seen God, he's meaning there's no experience, there's no knowledge, there's no insight into who God actually is. Those, there's no personal apprehension of the gospel. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And Jesus says there's both types of people in the world. There's two types of people, those who show evidence of what is in the storehouse of their heart, some good and some evil. And this is nowhere more clear than in our words. Jesus drives home this principle at the end of verse 45: Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words often are one of the best tests for what is actually in our heart because we either speak words that are harsh or words that are gentle. We either speak words that are proud or words that are humble. Words that are selfish or words that serve and build up and edify others. Words that show the mercy and love and grace of Christ or words that judge and condemn. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you yell at your wife, when you complain about your boss, when you gossip about that person that really annoys you, kids, when you snap at your siblings or talk back to your parents that says something about what's actually in our hearts. The mouth is the window to the soul. And we often want to live in denial of this. We want to distinguish between, well, that's something I did, but that's not who I am. You'll hear this in some kind of half-baked apologies, especially if you follow any sort of professional sports. There's always some athlete or some coach who's getting in trouble for doing or saying something, and his organization will make him get up and do a press conference. And he'll say, you know, I'm embarrassed I did this, and I apologize if anyone was offended. That's not who I am. No, it actually is. (laughs) Maybe we've said the same kinds of things. I'm just tired. I've had a long day. I'm just this. I'm just that. But that's not who I am. But it is. This is the overflow principle. There's something stored up in your heart. Jesus calls it treasure. And when the heart gets bumped, when it gets tipped over, when it gets jostled, when you turn up the temperature to a boil, when you apply a little bit of pressure, what is inside will come out. The things we say when we're angry, or when we're frustrated, or when we're tired, or when we're afraid, that shows what's really inside. What we do reveals what we are, and right judgment perceives the condition of the heart. So what do we do with this principle? What do we do with it? This is probably a familiar principle for many of us, but what do we do with it? Is this principle something I use to evaluate other people? Or is this principle something I'm supposed to use to evaluate myself? Which is it? Well, biblically, the answer is yes to both. It's yes to both. Elsewhere, Jesus uses this same imagery to warn us about false teachers, for example. Matthew seven fifteen, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus uses the same illustration, the same imagery to tell us what to look out for, what to watch out for, especially with false teachers. And people will argue, well, you can't see the heart. You can't judge a book by its cover. And that's true. You can't exhaustively see the heart but you can see what comes out of the heart. You can see the things that are downstream from the source and while we will never have exhaustive knowledge of all that is in a person's heart, it would be judgmental and and presumptuous and foolish and arrogant to think that we can know someone's complete motives and their intentions and their reasons. We don't have exhaustive knowledge of what is in anyone's heart but Just because you can't know everything in a person's heart doesn't mean that we can't know anything about a person's heart. You see the difference? We may not have exhaustive knowledge of a man's heart, but we can have real knowledge about the character and the quality and the nature of what is inside, whether it is good or evil. The fruit proves it. What we do reveals what we are. So we can use this text and this principle to evaluate others, but in Luke, in this sermon specifically, the emphasis is not on evaluating others. I think as we see the context here, Jesus is saying that the spotlight of this principle should be shined directly on ourselves. Look at what Jesus said immediately before our text. This comes right on the heels of verse 42, where he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take, the speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. It comes right on the heels of this rebuke of hypocrisy. And then look what comes right after our text in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's another rebuke, another warning against hypocrisy. Sandwiched in between these two passages that warn us about taking careful thought to our own hearts, Jesus gives us this principle about a tree and its fruit. Jesus wants us to look in the mirror. He says, don't be deceived. The condition of your heart is revealed by your words, your actions, your life. In light of this, I want to offer two takeaways for us today. And the first is this. Uh, Number one, this text gives us a truth to understand. It gives us a truth to understand. Don't ever forget that what matters is the heart. That is a truth that needs to be understood, a truth that needs to be believed. What matters most is the heart. It is our hearts that need changing. So deal with things at the heart level. Some of you may know the name Matthew Henry. He writes this a couple centuries back. He says, You may, if you please, stick figs upon thorns and hang a bunch of grapes upon a bramble, but they neither are nor can be the natural product of the trees. He's making a good point. If the issue is the heart, We have to deal with things at the level of the heart. Otherwise, we're just walking up to a thorn bush, taking a piece of fruit, and kind of cramming it onto one of the thorns. Change doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. There's no use trying to stick fruit onto a bad tree. The heart needs to change. What we need, what your kids need, what your marriages need, what the world needs is not external reform. It's not intellectual improvement. It's heart transformation. That's the only way. Change comes from the inside out. Listen, friends, if we deny this truth, not that we would deny it verbally, but sometimes we deny this truth in practice. We just try to clean To use another one of Jesus' illustrations, we try to clean the outside of the cup while neglecting the inside. If we deny this principle, we will never be discerning. We will never be honest with ourselves. We will be handicapped in our efforts to disciple and counsel others. We will be handicapped in our efforts to raise our kids. We'll be handicapped in our efforts to resolve marriage conflict. And we'll be handicapped in our efforts to even defeat our own sin, If we fail to understand that the issue is the heart, that's a truth that must not be forgotten. But this text doesn't just give us a truth to understand. It's also a call to action. This text gives us a call to action that we have to deal with things at the level of the heart. Both our diagnosis and the prescription need to deal with the heart. So today, Christ calls us to examine our hearts. Examine your heart what kind of fruit, what kind of words give evidence in your life of the condition of the heart? Do your words reveal a heart that is critical, angry, proud, impatient, judgmental, selfish, cruel? Or does it reveal a heart that is humble, that is Christ-like, that demonstrates mercy, that fears God, which leads to wisdom, which loves Christ, which leads to obedience? What do you see when you examine your heart? When we honestly assess the condition of our hearts and we find a lack of good fruit, this is a call to repentance. The Lord calls us to deep repentance, not just a repentance over things we have said and things we have done, but a repentance over what we are and who we are, a repentance of the condition of our heart. Not just, God, I'm sorry for saying something that is proud. God, forgive me for being proud. God, not just forgive me for looking a second time, but God, I am a lustful man, forgive me. We need to have the kind of repentance that we find in scripture where Isaiah falls before the throne of God as he has this vision of the thrice holy God and he says, woe is me, not just because of what he's done. He says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Peter does this as well. He's in the boat with Jesus. He sees the massive haul of fish and he falls down and says, depart from me, Because I am a sinful man. Isaiah and Peter both demonstrate a kind of repentance that is grieved and broken, not just over what they've done, but over what they are. Some of us haven't read the book of Leviticus, and it shows. Like, the point of Leviticus is to recognize that just by virtue of being human, we are unclean. Everything makes us unclean. We can't go through daily life without being unclean we need a deep level of repentance that acknowledges who and what we are so that we cry out in prayer like David in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we confess our lack of goodness before God, when we acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt before him, then we come full circle. Remember, this is just one point in Jesus' sermon. Flip back to verse 20. We're right back to where Jesus started this sermon. He starts it off with good news. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When we realize our lack, we realize our need, we sense our deficiencies, and we come to agree with God that we are not good and, and in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer Him, that's when we're on our knees before the cross saying, Have mercy on me. I need a new heart. I need cleansing. I need your gift of grace. And Jesus pours out His blessing. He says, Yours is the kingdom of God. You are belong in my family. I see that repentance. I see your faith, your recognition of your need, and I delight to meet that need. I delight to do that kind of heart surgery. I delight to cleanse people who come to me saying, Lord, I have nothing to give, and I need everything that comes from you. Listen, if you rightly judge yourself today, as you examine your heart and you recognize that the condition of your heart is bad, that there is no good fruit, and that there's an abundance of bad fruit, then what you need today is a new heart. Hear the words of Jesus in John 3. You, friend, must be born again. And we can't do that for you. And you can't do that for you. Only God can do that for you. So cry out to him for salvation to make you new, to make you alive, to save you and transform you by his grace. But many of you have been saved. Many of us do know the gospel and we believe in the gospel. And as we look at this text, we do see some good fruit in our lives, but we also look in different corners of this garden and we see that there's also some bad fruit. We are still beset with sins. Well, keep in mind, the Christian life is a process. There is this progressive sanctification that takes place as we are called to run the race. And like Hebrew says, lay aside every sin and weight that so easily besets us. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind on a daily basis. We're called to grow. In John 15, Jesus says that the branches that bear fruit, you know what he does? He prunes them so that they bear more fruit. So we who know Christ, we who follow Christ, we who are truly his disciples, this text still applies to us. We are called to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. It's what John the Baptist said a few chapters back, chapter 3. We are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If we recognize our need, we recognize God's grace, and we cry out for mercy, that's going to produce an ongoing change of life. So the question is, how do we bear fruit? Well, listen, this isn't just a matter of gritting your teeth and trying harder. Today's the Super Bowl. I was going to try not to mention it, but this just popped into mind, and I have to say it. A couple years back, I don't know how long, there was a really funny commercial, Super Bowl commercial. And it was this guy who was bald. He was looking in the mirror, and he had this, you know, some sort of hair regrowth project product. And he was looking, and it wasn't working, so he grits his teeth really hard and strains really hard, and this little hair goes, Ding! And just like pops out of his head he gets a huge smile on his face he goes all right and he tries again even harder and about 375 hairs pop out right here between his eyebrows boom, boom 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 and it was a humorous humorous uh commercial but that image comes into my mind when i think about the futility of us trying to produce more spiritual fruit by just gritting our teeth and trying harder if you see a lack of good fruit in your life the answer is not try harder, do more, grit your teeth. If you strain enough, maybe you can pop out a few figs or apples or some sort of good fruit. No, that's not how we bear fruit. How does a Christian bear fruit? If you desire to be more fruitful and to see more good fruit, well, again, this starts in the heart. Jesus tells us in John 15 that whoever abides in him bears much fruit. This is a byproduct of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Seeking Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus Christ. Obeying Jesus Christ. As our relationship with Christ grows, the natural product is fruit. This comes through our relationship with Christ, it comes through the power of the Spirit. Galatians 5 says that those who walk by the Spirit bear good fruit. So it's our relationship with Christ, it's our dependence on his spirit, and and it's also being nourished by his word. Psalm 1 tells us that the man who meditates day and night on God's word and delights in the law of the Lord bears much fruit. So as as we engage in our relationship with Christ, we're trusting in him, as we're depending on the power of his spirit, as we are immersing ourselves in his word, our heart starts to change. And good fruit is the result. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's an outworking of God's grace as we draw near to Him to rely on Him. What we do, Jesus tells us, reveals what we are, and right judgment will perceive the condition of the heart. So the question is do you judge rightly? Do you perceive the condition of your own heart? And what are you going to do with what you see? Perhaps you need a new heart. Perhaps you need to draw near to Christ today to seek him and receive his grace to keep changing your heart and to produce in you the good fruit that pleases him. So I encourage you today to look at yourself, but don't stop there. After you look at yourself, look to Christ. Only he can change the heart. Only he can cleanse the heart. And those who are poor in spirit, who look to him, who come to him, in repentance and humility with our great spiritual need. Jesus promises, if you come to me, that he will pour out his eternal blessing. He will save, he will sanctify, he will redeem, and he will bring us into his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, as we consider this timeless principle that you preached so many years ago about trees and fruit and about the overflow of the heart, I pray that you would help us to judge rightly that we would be able to accurately assess those around us to see what the real issues are in terms of perceiving the condition of the heart, but especially that we would see ourselves rightly. I pray that today we would not go from here spiritually blind, thinking we are good when we're not. And I pray that those of us who recognize our need, we recognize the deficiencies of our heart, that there would be a true repentance that acknowledges who we are before you, And that there would also be a true and genuine faith that lays hold of Christ and his promise. We come to you with empty hands, with nothing to offer. But we're thankful that you pour into us your perfect, redeeming grace. Thank you for loving us. Pray that you would grow us, that we would live lives that testify to your gospel, and live lives that bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen.